Hey, Sales of Nation, it's Tyler Lindley, your host here. Today, I have Casey Hill, the head of growth from Bonjoro on the podcast. Welcome, Casey. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. So uh, Casey is, like I mentioned, the head of growth at Bonjoro, a very high-growing, fast-paced uh, SaaS startup in the video marketing space. And he's also done a lot of writing online about SaaS, about inbound, about marketing and sales. Today, we're going to talk a lot about building customer advocacy within your customer base. So Bonjoro has done a great job of this, and they've done a lot of unique things to really grow their audience. Casey and his team have been joining a lot of podcasts and talking talking about this. So Casey, what does that mean exactly to you? If you're building advocacy within your own customer base, what does that look like? What is a good example of that? Yeah, great question. I and mean, it's a topic that I'm excited to chat with you guys about. I mean, I think at a core level, every business is going to have some portion of their customers that openly talk about the, the brand that are going to basically advocate for you, that are going to be out there talking on social media, that are going to be sharing testimonials, that are going to be driving referrals. And so to me, those are your advocates, right? And there's a lot of different ways. We have things like net promoter score out there that some brands do, where it's if, you're, if people rate you a 9 out of 10, then that means they're kind of more likely to essentially advocate for you or drive referrals. And there's lots of others. But I think at a base level, your advocates are the people that are going to be your word of mouth growth. And I think this is such a critical thing for every brand, but especially smaller brands, especially brands that don't have the huge monster size budgets, because those are the people that can help you grow without you having to push heavy on those paid levers. So I think that's kind of a, a core part of the engine of a lot of small businesses. And I read a statistic from Shopify. Shopify is a huge e-commerce engine for anyone who's kind of not familiar. And they said that the top 1% of your customers, and in this case, they're referring to e-commerce companies, but they said the top 1% of your customers are spending 18 times the average. It's pretty crazy. But it's a trend that I've seen having worked with a lot of e-commerce businesses to be true, right? People who are like the loyalists, they love the products, they keep coming back, they keep buying. And so the question I think for a lot of businesses is, how do I get more of those types of customers, right? How do I get more of the 18x customer? And I think that at a core level, it's figuring out ways to get those people to be so delighted by their experience with you that they become advocates. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely that you bring up the word delight there. And I think that word really rings true. If you're trying to build this group of early adopters who become advocates who might spend 18x, how do you delight those folks in a way that maybe is different than the other 99%? Not that you don't want to take care of everybody, but how do you give them that special treatment to where they want to go and and shout from the rooftops how, how much they love XYZ product or service? How do you create that infrastructure to enable those customer advocates? Yeah, great question. I think there's a handful of ways you can do it, but I think at a core level, it kind of boils down to relationships. So if you think about, let's take, for example, uh, a restaurant that you always go to, the local coffee shop, right? By and large, the chances that you keep coming back and patroning that specific coffee shop is not just because they have the very best coffee. Like, I'm sure the coffee is great, but it, it becomes an experience, right? It becomes kind of a ritual. You might go in and the barista recognizes, remembers you, asks you how your day is going, asks you about your kid. There's a development of a relationship that happens. And I think that we often forget, especially with... I work with a lot of online business. I work with a lot of companies that aren't just brick and mortars. And so I think especially for those brands they can get so tied in on kind of the scaling component 
that they start to lose that fundamental relationship component that I think is integral to business. And so at a core level, then I think you take a step back and you ask yourself, okay, well, how do I build relationships with these people? And I think there's a couple things behind it and there's a couple ways you can do it. One aspect of it is trying to put a human behind your brand. So at Bonjoro, that's kind of what we're doing. We're personal video emails. We're allowing someone to record a video and essentially put that in front of someone so they have, they can see someone's facial expression. They can hear tone. There's a little bit of a different dynamic. And I think that stands out. But I think there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can go above and beyond in a response based on a conversation and say, hey, we were talking about XYZ and I actually just read this book. I think you would love it. It's totally applicable to you know this different thing. Just small things that you're kind of putting into the process that makes it feel like it's not just an automation, mm-hmm. right? Because so often now sales process is like you meet with someone and then the follow-up process becomes something like, hey, just checking in. How are you doing? Hey, just checking in. Did you get my proposal? Do you have any feedback? And it becomes this very rote mundane thing where they just keep getting... And sometimes they actually are on an automation. It is just completely automated. But even if it's not automated, I've seen from consulting and working with lots of sales teams, this very kind of dry, plain, minimalist thing. It doesn't have personality. It's not building relationships. It's not going above and beyond and saying, I recognize and remember our conversation and I'm trying to add extra value to you because of that. So I think that's where it starts. I think that's the the core of it. Yeah, 100%. It reminds me of this day and age when you get something that is so clearly not automated. You just know for a fact, the 100% fact that it is not automation because it might be a personal video or because there's so much context in the message that you just know for sure this is not being sent to a thousand people. This is specifically to me. I know for me personally, when I've gotten messages like that, it makes you stop because that's so rare this day and age. There is so much automation running that I think we've become desensitized to these messages. So we're almost expecting automation, I think, at this point. We're expecting the spam. We're expecting the bots. And, and then when you enter in something human, it makes us stop. And it makes us think of that, probably that coffee shop experience like you're talking about. It makes you think of, wow, someone remembered my name. Someone knows something about me. They, they did something personally for me. And you bring up video, which I think is a natural way to do that online, one of the most natural ways. Tell me if I was to use a, a tool like Bonjoro or any tool, any just doing video online, how can I be more personable while using video when you're building these relationships, sometimes 100% online this day and age? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, great question. So part of it can actually start with your I guess you would say pipeline process. So to be personal, the more context you have, the more personal you can be. So let's say right now you have an opt-in form um, online. If someone just opts in, let's say you just ask for name and email. Well, that could be a little bit trickier, right? Because you don't really have any context. But now maybe say you ask one question, maybe you ask two questions, right? Like you, you get some context around where that person's coming from. And that can be either based on their specific problems, or it can be a quick write-in answer. It really just depends on the business. But through that context, that enables you to now be able to respond to something that's relevant. And so I think that to me is, is a big part of the overall ability for you to get personalized is through that. Now, if you're a salesperson and you just had a conversation with someone, then the follow-up, hopefully, if you've done your job as a salesperson, you've done what they call the discovery, you've learned a little bit about this person, and you have that context around where they're situated and where they're coming from. So then you have the tools to do an effective follow-up that isn't just, 
hey, just touching base or, hey, let me link you for support articles from <laughs> our documentation, which, by the way, is another common thing when I sit in with teens. It's, they're like, well, we're being personal. We, we linked them to these specific articles. Yeah, but you're still missing the mark a little bit. Like just sitting there and linking people a ton of articles for them to parse through. Like, I think people need to remember your job is to make their life easy. You want to make things as easy as possible. If that means saying, hey, here's an article actually on paragraph four, like parsing it down. Here's the exact part that you were talking about with compliance. This is what you should look at. That's what you want to do because that's removing barriers. That's making it easier on the consumer. And that's where you want to be as a as a person on the sales side. Yep, 100%. And I love that it takes about the same amount of time to do something that personalized as it does to send the seemingly automated message of here's just the articles, figure it out on your own, or here's my standard stock email that I send at this point in the sales process that I don't tailor at all to our conversation. Just I'm just trying to check the boxes. Let me just check the boxes, do the bare minimum, and then move on. Versus it doesn't even take that much more, but if you just do a little bit more and it just send yeah. maybe a short video or add a little bit of context via text or however you're doing it, that makes all the difference because just, I think a little bit of context stands out so much in a sea of just, it looks like this is just a template and people are getting yeah. sick and sick of templates and how can we overcome this template world that we live in? Video, a natural place to do it, but also just using that context to respond via text, via video, however you're interacting, you've got to add in that context. And it seems like a lot of people are still dropping the ball in that regard. Would you say that? Yeah, 100%. And I, I completely agree. And I think part of it too is I'm not in, by any means against automation. I, I would encourage people to just be more discretionary about where they use it. So like I always, I, th I think this is a good example. So if you're announcing that you're going to be pushing out some new product thing, that makes a lot of sense for an automation. It's not tailored to anyone. You're just letting people know, hey guys, by the way, we're going to be doing this new launch on Friday. But if it's your first interaction with someone, right? They just opted in, you, they just booked a call, you just had a demo. If it's something like that's where I think you want to focus your energy attention. And like you're saying, it's often not that much longer. If you think about the amount of time it takes for you to write a really detailed message in response to someone or how long it takes for you to flip on something like Bonjour or some video application, record a video um, and shoot that out. I do about 30 recordings, video recordings, welcoming um, new customers per day. And that takes me about 30 minutes or less. Mm -hmm. And so each one of those videos is taking me less than a minute. But because I have context for each one, inside of our tool, we, we integrate with a lot of CRMs or ESPs. So you can see the actual, like any custom fields inside of our app. And why that's cool is if someone fills out a questionnaire, oh, hey, I'm, I have a sales team. This is what our objectives are. This is, they fill it out. I can just open my phone. Hey, you got a new task from this software company. They're looking at implementing this for their sales team. I can just flip that in. Hey, super excited to have you guys on board. We work with a lot of sales teams and, and have that that's really tailored to them. So I think, like you're saying, people often get daunted by that. They're like, oh, I don't know, video, mm -hmm. it seems... Like it's this intimidating process. And I think partially that's because in the past, I think it was a lot more of an intimidating process in terms of if you had to make a personal video and then you had to upload it to YouTube and then you had to take the YouTube video. I had a story with a guy recently I was chatting with and he told me, he said, Casey, before I was using Bonjoro, we used to make, he said, I had three video guys and we used to make custom videos and upload them to YouTube. He's like, I was spending mid six figures hiring three people to do that full time. 
So I think part of it is too, is breaking down some of those barriers of saying, no, you don't have to have it be some crazy complex process, right? Click record, send, build it into your systems. I think that's where it's most effective because you want to, that's the other component of this too, is sales teams and as someone who's run a sales team and has been involved in a lot of sales teams, you want to reduce friction, right? You don't want to make things harder for people. You want it to be turnkey, easy. And if people are able to see results on the tail end of that, then they'll get excited and they'll adopt it ultimately. Yep. I agree with the reduced friction. That's that's a lot of what a sales manager or sales leader or, or executive of any company, that's a lot of what they're trying to do is just remove those barriers for their people, uh, finding out where they're getting stuck or what's slowing them down and removing those barriers. It is funny too, how the cost of all this has come down. There's no barrier to entry now with video online. The only barrier is yourself and how nervous you are to be on video, which <laughs> I saw recently. I mean, you, you do, you need to do a hundred videos online as fast as you can because the first hundred will be terrible, but then you're going to learn a lot about what you say, how you talk, how many times you say, um, and like, and those kind of things, which tools like gong remind us of those little things that we say often in conversation. But it's interesting. Another thing that you brought up there is it's almost doing things that don't scale for these smaller companies that is a competitive advantage. For these massive companies, they can't do everything personalized. That's why automation exists because they've got thousands and thousands of customers, if not millions of customers, and they don't have enough people or bandwidth to be able to do those small things that don't scale. Responding, like you mentioned, you do 30 of the intro videos uh, in a day. A larger team couldn't do that. So that is a competitive advantage and, and it helps smaller brands to stand out. Are there other things besides you bring up an intro video, which I think is a natural place to insert in video into a sales or marketing conversation? Are there other natural places where it makes sense to insert in video? And if so, kind of what are some of those key examples that you see a lot of people getting a lot of mileage out of? Yeah, great question. And then I want to touch on a couple other things because you had a bunch of good topics nested in there. <laughs> the imperfection of video and how to approach that, scalability side, those are all really valuable. So I guess in terms of use cases of where people are using it. So when I first adopted this tool a couple of years ago, in terms of Bonjoro specifically, before I even worked for Bonjoro, I was working for an inbound marketing team. And basically what we did was we had a problem with demo no-shows. So about 30% of people who booked did not ultimately end up showing up. So we used personal video as right after someone booked, we tried to send them a personal video just saying, hey, we're really excited to meet, set some context for the conversation, double confirm the time for anyone who works um, internationally. Even if your calendar system sends it in the right time zone, I know that those teams have had some of that same issue with people getting confused. So part of it is you clarifying that. And I think part of it too is establishing a little bit of authority in that use case. Hmm. So instead of people thinking, oh, great, I'm going to talk to a salesperson. And ultimately it's like low priority to them because so they might not even show up if something else comes up in their schedule because they're kind of like, ah, oh, this is a salesperson. I don't want to get pitched. But if you establish yourself as a product expert and instead the person's, oh, this person knows a ton about my specific use case and application, I found out that the attendance rate were much higher. So hmm. I think that's one thing around that. The other thing I think is just following up with proposals or RFPs or whatever you guys kind of call or whatever the business calls it. And just having that be, again, a more personalized follow-up. So it's not just the mundane checking in, did you get this or that type of thing, but you actually have a human face. The person remembers that, hey, they're interacting with a human, that this brand has humans behind it. It allows there to be a little bit of a differentiation as we were noting. Your competition is likely not doing this. So you're, in a way, establishing a wedge of why you're different. So 
In terms of the sales side, I would say it's around calls, it's around introductions, it's around follow-up. And then once people come on board, I think there's a whole new world of use cases. A major way that video is being used too is around customer retention and to try to build those advocates. So that could be checking in and depending on the company, again, if you're a company that has a trial period, checking in throughout the trial period and making sure that person's having a smooth run through it. Um, If someone's been a customer for a while, getting a review. I think people would be blown away if they saw the amount of percentage that they got of reviews if they personally asked and it was like reaching out to, hey, Tyler, versus just like an automated blast. This is, can you leave us a review? I will guarantee you right here that you will get a substantially higher rate of people leaving a review if it's a personal ask. Mm -hmm. That's one way around it. But I think overall, whether it's celebrating their one-year anniversary with you as a company, whether it's reaching out around the holidays, whatever it might be, if you're just there adding value, trying to make their experience better, I think that means a lot. And I think that customers receive that and are, and are positive to that. So those are a few of them. And then just to quickly touch um, on some of those things, because you, again, you brought up two really good other topics. So when I first started, and I think many people shared the same thing with me, like you said, is people are just uneasy about video. They're not used to getting behind it. If you're like, hey guys, like you're going to be recording videos. Like the first response of a lot of people is, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> what, what I would encourage people to remember is that, and this is a topic that actually Harvard Business Review has written about quite extensively, is personal videos are effective because of familiarity, right? So you don't need to be polished. You don't need the studio. You don't need the perfect lighting. In fact, That imperfection is one of the reasons why personal video is so effective. When I first started, for people, I don't think this is video, so people probably can't see me, or I don't know if it is or not, Tyler. But (laughs) when when I first started, I had disheveled hair, and I was out like doing my videos, walking, all of these different things. And I was getting some of the highest open rates on our team. And everyone's like, how the heck is Casey getting good open rates? And to me, it was just because... Or, and good engagement rates. And to me, it was just because I was being human. I was just being myself. And people, I think, can see that. So I've noticed having looked at a lot of successful use cases around video, that some of the best ones are where a kid runs into the frame, (laughs) a dog interrupts the video and they go wrestle with it for a second. A coworker goes and says, hi, people see that. And in the early days, like, oh no, I need to redo my video. I need to redo my video. But they're forgetting that it's those human moments that make people think, oh shoot, this is really something that was made on the spot for me. It was made on the spot for me. The person took time out of their day to make it for me. Mm-hmm. So that's just one note for people who are thinking about trying that to not be intimidated. And then the other thing I want to talk about just quickly is this concept of scalability, right? Because it is something that comes up a lot. People say, well, there's no possible way that I would be able to send whatever X number. Well, a couple of things to kind of mention. One, I just had a person who I chatted with who was doing 7,000 videos per month on our system. Wow. They had one person who was doing it and that one person was doing that part-time. They spent three to four hours a day. They had a woman in the Philippines and she was doing 7,000 videos per month. So the first thing to note again is I think sometimes people underestimate, <laughs> um, you know, what that represents and what this, what the gentleman I was talking with told me, he was like, look, we can just keep scaling this out. We'll bring in three people. We'll bring in five people. As long as it's driving the metrics, in their case, it was return traffic. They were trying to basically get more customer lifetime value from buyers, incentivize them to come back. 
And so they were, it seems not scalable by the nature of it, but in fact, it is scalable because I could just bring on 10 more people mm-hmm. who would record these same videos. And now we can do 70,000 per month. So I think one of the things to realize is even though it can seem inherently non-scalable, if it drives the business metrics that you're looking to have it drive, reduction of churn, increase in, in repeat sales, it then just becomes a math equation, right? If you can reduce churn by 2%, how much money does that free up? Well, if that frees up $300,000 a year, well, congrats. Now it just became something that you could scale in with more people. Anyways, touched on a lot of points there, but those are all good, good ones. So Thank you so in. much for listening to the first half of my interview with today's guest. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have a question for me or want help scaling your sales system? Get in touch by visiting our website and clicking on contact us. Or you can email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. Thanks and be on the lookout for the second half of today's interview coming soon. Have a great day.